I'm Dennis. I'm one of the pastors here. Really excited to be to be with you this morning. Over the past few weeks, we've been walking through what I have just been referring to myself as a mini-series. It's a three-week series that we stumbled our way into. A few weeks back, um, as I was beginning to process through and think through what I might want to teach on the first Sunday that I would be teaching here in Jan- back in January, started really processing through some passages of Scripture that had meant a lot to me back in the fall. Passages where I was spending a lot of time reading through the stories where Jesus wept. And as I was working through all of those, I texted Pastor Shaq and ultimately said, I thought this was just one sermon, but I actually think it's three sermons because if it's one sermon, it's an hour and a half. And I don't think anybody really wants that. And so we decided to turn this into a three-week series where we would actually take the time to sit with these three different passages. Because at least for me, in all the years that I have been in church, I personally can't recall a time where anyone walked through these passages with me, where we paid attention to the fact that Jesus stopped and wept. Because these stories are at least the first two that we talked through from the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke, both of those stories of Jesus weeping are tucked inside of stories where we typically focus on other things. So the story that we started with, the story of Jesus weeping, when he goes to visit Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus has died. And Jesus knows that he's going to raise Lazarus back from the dead, and yet he still enters into the pain and grief that Mary and Martha are feeling, and he weeps with them. But that's typically not the part of the story that we focus on. We tend to focus on the part of the story where Jesus, in his supernatural and divine power, raises Lazarus back from death to life. The story that we walked through last week, it's in the Gospel of Luke, It's a story of Jesus approaching Jerusalem in his final week of ministry. And he looks over the city. And Luke tells us that he sees the city and the people who inhabit it, and he begins to weep. He grieves the hard-heartedness of the people who live in Jerusalem that Jesus knows in a week's time are going to be responsible for rejecting him and killing him. But that story of Jesus weeping, it's tucked inside of a story that we know as the triumphal entry. And so we tend to focus more on Jesus' triumphal entry, the fact that, it's a, that he arrives in Jerusalem as a king riding on a donkey, which is a symbol of peace, and that people come out of their houses and lay down cloaks, and he enters into the city with people saying and shouting, Hosanna, we focus on that aspect of the story instead of the aspect of the story where Jesus weeps. And it got me wondering, even in my own ministry, the number of sermons that I've given over the past 15 years, how many of them focused more on Jesus' divinity as compared to his humanity? How often do we center our faith and understanding of Jesus on his divinity? And by that I mean his supernatural power. 
When we do that, I think we run the risk of believing that to be a good Christian, it literally means that we need to pray in tongues. That we need to be able to pray in such a way where people who are sick are healed. You know, I've existed in spaces where it seemed to be communicated that like, the, like you know you've made it in your faith when you can literally say to a mountain, move and it will move. And we're taught in many ways to see these stories of Jesus and believe rightly that because the Spirit was alive in him and therefore in us that we are capable of performing the same supernatural acts that he does. But we never talk that, well, we don't talk that much about Jesus grieving. We don't talk about Jesus lamenting. And we don't talk a lot about Jesus praying. I wonder, and this is just something that I was processing through over the past few days, I wonder like if we think about our communities and our neighborhoods, if we think about our neighbors and our families, and we think about the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, do the people around us need someone who can move a mountain or someone who can grieve well with them? Do our communities need someone who's so charismatic that they can draw a large crowd and teach a really good message? Or do we need folks who know how to lament the brokenness and evil in our world well? Started wondering if maybe what our communities, our neighbors and neighborhoods actually need are people who understand Jesus' divinity and his humanity and who can bring both into every situation. Who can look at our neighbors and say there's hope for change. Transformation is possible. But in this space, the pain you're feeling, I'm not gonna push you through it or rush you through it. I'm gonna enter into it and cry with you. The sin that you're stuck in, the hard-heartedness that you're experiencing, the brokenness we see in our community, I'm not just gonna rush in and tell you, just act differently and everything will change. I believe that change can come. I believe that Jesus can literally cause us to turn and head in the other direction in a moment's notice, but I'm also going to lament with you. Today we're going to talk about this last story. It's captured in Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, as he's praying, cries. It's this interesting picture that Jesus, as he is praying, that he prays with cries and tears. And then we're gonna to try to make sense of what that might mean for each one of us as we seek to follow after Jesus, as we seek to live our faith well in our neighborhoods and with our neighbors. 
passage begins in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. It reads this way, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In verse 14, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our great high priest. Priests play two roles in the lives of God's people. One, They offer sacrifices on behalf of the people so that God will forgive their sins. Throughout the Old Testament, we see priests consistently doing this. They're responsible for receiving the offerings of the people and then offering those back to God as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. This is the means by which the people can remain in right relationship with God. So priests offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people so that God's people can remain in right relationship with God. And two, priests are responsible for leading God's people into worship. They lead people into the presence of God. In essence, priests are helping God's people discover and rediscover God's majesty and greatness. They're worship leaders of sorts. The author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is our high priest who offers himself as our once and for all sacrifice. That in his sacrifice, he atones for our sins so that we might be in right relationship with God. There's no more ongoing sacrifice needed. There's no more ongoing activity that's needed. His sacrifice is sufficient. It's once and for all. And through that sacrifice, we are placed back into right relationship with God. And that Jesus leads us into worshiping God and discovering his greatness and majesty. But why do we need a priest? The passage begins with the word therefore, so clearly the author is referring to something that has come before it. And in the two verses right before this, we read these words, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The point is clear. We are all broken people whose lives are marked by sin. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we use every tool and resource at our disposal to try and hide our brokenness and our sin but we can't hide it from God. And like Adam and Eve, we cannot make ourselves right with God. We're unable to atone for our own sins and therefore we need Jesus to be our great high priest. But, and I love this, The author of Hebrews goes to great pains to demonstrate that while Jesus is our great high priest, he's also preeminently familiar with our 
human frailty and weakness. Jesus, who was fully God, was also fully human. And because he was fully human, Jesus is uniquely capable of being our great high priest. Jesus knows what it is to be tested. He knows what it is to experience weakness. He knows what it is to face injustice and opposition. He knows what it is to endure hardship and to be humiliated. We tend not to think about those aspects of Jesus' life. But think of him on the cross. He's been mocked, he's been spit on, he's been stripped naked, and he's been hung to a cross. The Savior of the world, our great high priest, knows what it is to be humiliated. He knows what it is to walk through life and to face the same sorts of temptations and doubts. Those trials. Right? Jesus is able to relate to those moments where we wonder if we can pay the bills. He didn't always know where his next meal was coming from. And this, because of Jesus' humanity, this is why Jesus is able to be patient with us. It's why he's able to be full of grace and rich in mercy. It's why he's sympathetic and gentle with us. This is how he can grieve our moments of hard-heartedness. It's why he's slow to anger. He understands our fears and temptations. And all of this, because we have a great high priest who has offered a once and for all sacrifice that places us into right relationship with God, that once and for all places us into right relationship with God, and because he's familiar with everything that we face and endure, because there's nothing that we might experience in our life that he would not be familiar with or sympathetic with, it's because of all of this that in verse 16 we're encouraged to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus offered himself as our atoning sacrifice, because he has driven our sins as, away as far as the east is from the west, and because Jesus is familiar with our human condition, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And let's be clear, this means to come before God and pray. Knowing that as we pray, we will receive the mercy and grace we need to endure our present struggles and weakness. We can draw near to God and pray in confidence because he will help us face and overcome sin. Because he will give us the strength we need to endure the day. And he'll do all of this because he's Jesus. Listen to the first three verses of Psalm 27 in light of this passage in Hebrews. 
psalmist writes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Because we have a great high priest who has placed us into an unshakable right relationship with God that no one can come and snatch away. Because we come before a God who knows all that we face and endure. And because of that, we can draw before God's throne of grace and not fear and be confident. So, we're to approach God's throne of grace with confidence and in prayer. But does the author of Hebrews give us an example of what this prayer might look like? If we skip down a few verses into chapter 5, we get to verse 7, and this is the way the author of Hebrews describes Jesus, the way Jesus prayed. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he, Jesus, offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And pay attention to these words. I'm going to come back to them. Son, though he was, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's a pretty straightforward passage. While Jesus was alive, he prayed. We know based on the gospel accounts that prayer was a regular rhythm of his, that he would frequently escape and find time alone to be with God and to talk with God. We're told that Jesus prayed with fervent tears and cries. The word cries in the original Greek means clamor or shouting. And the word tears in the original Greek means tears. So we know that Jesus' times of prayer were often passionate. They were loud. They were emotional. It's consistent, actually, if we go back into the Old Testament with the way that we see both Abraham and Moses pray. Two specific things to notice, though. First, Jesus prayed to the one who could save him from death, but didn't. Jesus' own prayer life debunks the idea that when we pray, we get everything we ask for. Jesus' own prayer life debunks the idea that when we pray, we'll get everything we ask for, when we ask for it, how we ask for it, in the time we ask for it. The promise is that our prayers will be heard and that God will help 
us face and endure the hardships we're encountering. The promise does not appear to be that we'll always get what we want. Second, notice the language. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. It seems that prayer produced obedience in Jesus. An obedience that enabled him to face and endure every struggle he encountered. The formula then, if there is one, isn't we pray and we get results. It seems like the formula is we pray, we grow in relationship with God, and we grow in obedience to God. And as we grow in obedience to God, we receive the help and assistance we need to make it through our days. To face the things in front of us. It seems, according to the author of Hebrews, that Jesus was enabled to endure all that he did, not because his prayers were answered, but because his prayers produced relationship that led to obedience. I think this is where we need to maybe take a few moments. Because I think many of us have grown up thinking of prayer this way. Maybe we've been taught prayer this way. But I think many of us, consciously or unconsciously, kind of carry this idea that prayer is a kind of spiritual technique that leads to the outcomes we want, that produces the results we desire. Say that again. I think many of us consciously or unconsciously think of prayer as a spiritual technique for getting what we want from God. That it's magic. I mean, a cursory reading of the Gospels reveals stories where we're seemingly taught that we'll get everything we ask for because God is a good father and good fathers always give their kids exactly what they ask for. Or we see the story where we're told that whatever we ask for in Jesus' name, as long as we pray in Jesus' name, we'll get exactly what we're asking for. And this is my language, it's not found in the Bible anywhere, but I will just say sometimes I think when we pray and we say in Jesus' name, we think of it the way that a magician thinks of an incantation. I'm saying the right words. It should produce the right results. Or we read the story of the persistent widow and think that if we just ask over and over and over again, God will eventually give us exactly what we're asking for. Now, I am not suggesting that we shouldn't ask for things when we pray. We should. That example is set for us in the prayer that Jesus taught his own disciples, the Lord's Prayer. And I'm not saying that God won't hear our prayers and sometimes respond by giving us exactly what we have asked for. I'm just saying I don't think we're supposed to view prayer primarily as a means of getting results. I don't think we're supposed to primarily think of prayer as a spiritual technique for getting what we want. 
I think we're supposed to primarily view prayer as a way of building relationship with and obedience to God. Because it seems this is the way Jesus viewed prayer. And I believe that every one of us here wants to become more like Jesus. That no matter where we are on our spiritual journey, no matter what we think about Jesus, even if we just think he's a really wise teacher, I think we all think there's something to learn from him. We want to grow to become like him. We want to increase in Christ-likeness. But I think the temptation that we face, especially in our modern culture, is to pursue Christ-likeness in as pain-free a way as we can. I think we want to become like Jesus in a way that costs us nothing. But there's not a single thing worth pursuing in our lives that doesn't require us to change. Not a single thing in our life worth having doesn't require us to become something different. To try and find a shortcut to becoming like Jesus, that's not what we're invited to. We are supposed to embrace a slow, arduous path of apprenticeship to Jesus. I was thinking this week about a conversation Kenny and I had months ago. He was talking with me about the first times he ever sang in church. And it was just you were invited to come along with family and just became a part of life. And it was over time. And it was in relationship that Kenny eventually grew into and developed all the gifts that we get to enjoy today. I look around the room and just the things that we go about our lives doing every day, Savannah being a teacher, we don't just wake up and like, I'm a teacher, I'm going to go teach second graders at an inner city school and I'm going to be good at it. Not a single one of us is like, I'd like to become an accountant, I'm going to go be an accountant and without ever practicing or studying it, without any work whatsoever, I'm gonna get that job and I'm gonna be good at it. And yet for some reason, and I offer this with a lot of love because this was a lesson that I needed to learn and I'm still learning. Even though there's really no aspect of our lives where we don't recognize that to become something different, we have to change, we want that for our faith in Jesus. We want to become Christ-like without it costing us anything. We want it in as pain-free a way as we can. We want magic. We want to read a book and discover a quick path to holiness. We want a worship leader who can help us feel close to God so that we don't have to figure out how to feel close to God on our own in our everyday lives. We want a charismatic pastor. I'm sorry, I'm not him. 
who can preach a sermon, bring us into the presence of God so that we don't have to learn how to get into the presence of God on our own. We want a sermon series on prayer so we can start praying and getting our prayers answered without doing the work of learning what prayer is and how we're supposed to do it. We want magic. But the world is not transformed by magicians. The world is entertained by magicians, but not changed by them. The world is made new by Jesus. The world is transformed by our great high priest. And if we're to trust the apostle Peter, each one of us is also a priest. Say that again. If we are to trust the apostle Peter, then each and every one of us is supposed to be a priest. Sent by God in order to declare God's goodness and majesty to our neighbors and neighborhoods. To offer our lives as a pathway back to God so that all of his wayward children can come home. The passage I'm referencing is the one where Peter refers to all of us as a royal priesthood. A holy nation sent to declare the excellencies of God, to point people towards his marvelous light. That just as Jesus is our great high priest, we are to be priests for our neighbors and neighborhoods. So, what do we do with all of this? How does this hopefully change our lives today and tomorrow? First, I think we have to switch the way we think about prayer. It is about relationship and obedience, not results. Prayer is primarily about relationship and obedience, not results. When we pray, we pray like Jesus did to grow in relationship with God. The picture we get throughout the Gospels is that Jesus becomes able to endure the cross. Is that through relationship with his Father, he grows in trust and obedience so that he can endure the cross. And as we know and trust God more, we'll grow in obedience. We will learn how to endure hardship and struggle, humiliation and weakness, injustice and brokenness with the humble confidence that God sees us, hears us, is with us, and is giving us the help and assistance we need every day to make it through. The second thing I think this means for us today is that we can accept the invitation to emulate Jesus' prayer life. 
We can develop consistent rhythms of prayer. That might mean for some of us setting aside five minutes three days a week. Just five minutes three days a week to begin talking to God. I can promise you it will feel awkward. You won't know what you're saying. You won't know if it makes sense. There's probably a level of embarrassment that you're like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to talk to God and this is what I sound like. And that's the beautiful path of discipleship. That's the beautiful path of growing in Christ-likeness. It's the beautiful reality of knowing that he's gentle with us, that he's patient with us, that he's rich in mercy and full of grace. We can embarrass ourselves in front of God as we chase after becoming like him. It's a lifelong pursuit. Apprenticeship with Jesus is not completed in a few minutes over the course of a few months. It is a lifelong pursuit. And three, well, one more thing on this. When we emulate Jesus' prayer life, it doesn't have to be proper and orderly. It doesn't have to be proper and orderly. Jesus ugly cried when he was praying. I don't think we like thinking about this because he's God, but he was human. And if he prayed the way that the author of Hebrews tells us that he prayed, if he prayed the way that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed that like he like bled, this isn't some calm and controlled prayer life. This is someone who felt deeply who knew pain deeply, who knew injustice deeply, who knew God deeply, and who came to God and would pray so fervently and so passionately that I picture snot running out of his nose, tears flowing from his eyes. I'll say this in particular to my white sisters and brothers in the room. I don't think we know how to pray this way. Thank you. We don't know how to pray this way. Can't tell you the number of times I've been in a prayer in a room with people praying and someone has come to me and apologized and just said like, I'm not really good at it. Okay, fine. I'm not either. Can learn from our black sisters and brothers on how to approach Jesus with passion and emotion, can cry out. I think to keep going here a little bit, and this isn't in my notes, so I'm sorry. I'm just leaning into thoughts that have been with me for the week. I don't know how long I've been talking. Is it long? Okay. Thank you, Alana. Thank you. Again, to my white sisters and brothers in the room, I don't think we've needed to know how to pray this way because of the privilege we've lived most of our life with. Not many of us face injustice. Not many of us, in Pittsburgh in particular, 
We're trying to figure out how to pay our bills. We don't live with the type of desperation or facing the type of injustice that requires us to approach the throne of God in this way. And so we don't know how. And in fact, because we don't know how, I think we've been taught to see people who do approach God's throne of grace that way as somehow being lesser. That somehow their faith must be deficient. There's a lot for us white women and men to unlearn about the way that we approach God in prayer. We need to discover what it is to be desperate and to need him to show up. Back to my notes. The last thing I think we need to be able to take with us is that just as Jesus is our great high priest, we can accept the assignment to be priests to our neighbors and neighborhoods. We can live our lives in a sacrificial way, pointing people to Jesus through our words and our actions. And like Jesus, we can bring our neighbors and neighborhoods before God in prayer. We are taught that one of our primary weapons in combating the darkness we see and experience inside of our neighborhoods every week is prayer. Prayer is one of the primary ways that we push back against the principalities that seek to control and dominate our communities. If we are troubled by the violence we see, the fact that our neighbors, just the gun violence that we see, if we're troubled by it, our prayers should probably look more like Jesus's here in Hebrews. Our lives are to be a pathway back to God. And part of that work is consistent, faithful presence over time. We show up consistently for our neighbors and neighborhoods. Part of that work is prayer. I think we should be approaching God's throne of grace in confidence and with tears and cries, begging him to bring peace. Begging him to make our neighborhoods and neighbors new again. And then we go about our lives knowing our assignment and living it out that we are to be priests to our neighbors and neighborhood. So we approach prayer knowing that it is primarily about relationship and obedience, not results. We can emulate Jesus' prayer life and we can accept our assignments to be priests to our neighbors and neighborhoods. Because what if praying is one of the main parts of God's plan for renewing us? That his neighborhood could be restored so that our neighbors could be made new. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You are full of grace. You are rich in mercy. You are patient with us. And Father, we confess 
We don't pray this way. Father, would you speak to our hearts? Would you do something in our hearts to to transform us, to draw us into you, that we might learn to emulate your way, that we might be apprentices of Jesus in every aspect of our lives, that we would not seek magic, but that we would engage the hard, slow work of chasing after you, being made new, increasingly becoming like you, for the sake of our neighbors and neighborhood. Father, we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.